0: You're listening to Media on the Radio, the podcast that features conversations with media professionals and highlights the unique stories of how they broke into the industry. Today on the show, we have Chris Capizzi, who for the last two years has been working as a commercial actor in Los Angeles.
1: I mean, I think there's like 10,000 new actors coming into L.A. every day. The breakdown was for like beautiful people. And I had my head taken that morning before, and so I had a ton of makeup on. And then I poked it, and even my agent was like, whoa, what did you do? Like, how did you you
0: do that? Thanks for your support and listening to Media on the Radio. Our numbers on iTunes have doubled every month, so hopefully that continues. And please like me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter, at Media on Radio. Chris and I are good friends, and it's exciting to see him really focus on what his passion is, which is acting. He has a lot to say about it, so please tune in. When you started at AU, what was the target or dream job, or did you have one?
1: All I did was take uh, these like general education requirements, all these like kind of BS classes or gen ed. Ended up like changing my life completely. All of my views and everything flip-flopped all the way like 180 degrees. You know, like I went to a, like a photo talk uh, with a TA, and it ended up being a transgender photographer photographing different people at different uh, stages of their transition. And it was like literally the first time i had ever heard anything about transgender. And it totally blew my mind, but in a really like amazing way. And then I ended up taking sex and gender classes and philosophy and out of all of that, I think I started to set my sights on being a director and writing. And then I had a really tough time at AU because I started dabbling in acting and it sort of like spread like a disease. (laughs) And started affecting everything
0: else, and it started like pushing everything else out of the way. You're pretty open about your your Penn State career, and you've told me quite a bit about it. I think it's like something that people in college now can learn from. What would you say? How would you sum that up and why why do you think your you know protracted first try at college was the way it was? And then can you compare it to the second more intense, more focused time at AU?
1: So I think that it all kind of stems from uh, the way I was brought up, because my mom was a single mom. She had an arranged marriage, and he ended up leaving. She did remarry, like, really early. But I think that the couple years that she was a single mom, like, she was very protective. And, yeah, just, like, very protective. And so I grew up, like, pretty sheltered. And I was, like, a mama's boy, I'm probably still a mama's boy. (laughs) So when I went to Penn State, I mean, that was my first taste of freedom, where I could make any decision I wanted, and there were no repercussions. There were no repercussions, as I saw it at that time. But, you know, when I was at home, even at 18, my curfew was, like, 9.30. And so when I could stay out past 4 o'clock in the morning, every single day that I wanted to, I mean, it also didn't happen. Like, I didn't get there and then just go crazy. I was still, like, a very studious—I was a prodigal son of my family, and i had always done well in school. And so the first semester, I did really well. And going into my last week, uh, I had started to meet some of the people that I would eventually like hang out with for the time that I was there. And so I started drinking and started partying. And the last week, I totally messed everything up. And I ended that semester with, uh, I had failed two exams, and I had never gotten grades like that in my life. And so I pretty much just gave up after that. And I started lying to my parents about everything. And they ended up bailing me out. And after the first semester, I was just kind of flying by the feet of my pants, um, digging a hole deeper and deeper and deeper for myself. And then when I was older, you know, I was 28 when I went to AU, I think that was huge for me. Because after I came back from Penn State, man, I worked in an Asian grocery store in the express line. I managed my parents' pizza shop. I got a mortgage.
0: And then after you graduated from AU, you got a job at Arlington Independent Media, which is where I met you. Talk a little bit about that experience and what that was like.
1: It was really awesome. I mean, the community and like everyone that worked there is like so small. And it was a great time for me to still like help people and still learn and still and teach and and while I'm still like figuring things out for myself and I'm not sure.
0: And then you decided to go across country with your wife over the course of many months. Can you talk about that trip? And why you why why you went on it?
1: Kind of going back to uh, my time at AIM, I think that's when I picked up being a little bit political, and maybe that comes from AU too. And I think that was one of the greatest things uh, about working at AIM was just caring and being able to care and uh, seeing that media and things like and avenues like that we could use those in order to do something or say something. After having worked there for two years, I don't know. We just like wanted to do more and. So we kind of just, yeah, we kind of just left. I mean, we went on our honeymoon, and then we came back, we packed everything up, uh, headed for warmer weather, and then we just had the most ridiculous time on the road trip. We had no plan. It's like such a, I guess, like defining life thing that once you start talking about it and, it, and some time has passed afterwards, you're like, man, is that, is that all I'm going to do? It's like this ridiculous, crazy road trip where we got picked up by two different families in two different states, we, like, live with them. We ended up buying a 1972 trailer. You know, we saw you guys on Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to New Orleans. We hung out in Treme on Mardi Gras. And then we just ran out of money, and we didn't know what to do. So was, we just kind of, like, landed here with about 1500 bucks, And we got into Creightown, and it was just, like, so scary. Uh, like, 11 p.m. on a Friday night in K-Town. and um, we went to a laundromat. We are watching local news, looking on Craigslist, and we just found an apartment for two months. We just had no idea what we were going to do. We were happier with four walls and a bathroom and a kitchen because we hadn't had that for like six months, maybe eight months. I started to entertain the idea of acting. Um, and I went to a QA and a session with, um, at the acting studio with Charles Michael Davis. He's the lead on a WB show called uh, the original, and it's all sounds very strange. I'm probably gonna start to sound like early LA after this, because things like matter here that don't matter anywhere else. He just talked about how he survived. He took acting workshops, he put himself on commercial acting and print jobs. And I was like, wow, I think I could do that. Like, how hard could it be? And so I took a commercial acting class, sent out my audition to agent, and then I got an agent, and for two and a half years, I've been auditioning commercially. And then this coming year, I'm going to try to, to do television and probably more student film, and get independent features.
0: Looking back on all these kind of adventures that you've had and even adventures through Penn State and across the country and kind of being defocused, what advice would you give somebody that, that actually doesn't know what they want to do?
1: Oh my God, don't take any advice from anyone. <laughs> I, I think I learned that most in LA being an actor, because, I mean, there's a million of, them, uh, of us, like, I mean, I think there's like 10,000 new actors coming into LA every day. And there's a million different ways to do everything. And so, especially in school, I mean, the possibilities are so open. Someone else's path is not gonna be yours, but part of their path might help you. I used to always be jealous of my friends that were doctors especially if they had parents that were doctors, because they always knew in life that they were going to be a doctor. You know, like my friend Dave is um, a sports medicine doctor, and his brother a doctor, his dad's a doctor, his path was always set, and he accepted it. Like, he wanted it, too. And I was always so jealous of that because I never knew what I wanted. I mean, even today, like, I mean, this is what I want to do, but it's so scary that I question it all the time.
0: What do you think that is? Why do you think? Why do you think? Yeah, why do you think you question it?
1: In the past two years, commercially, I've probably averaged maybe like $10,000 a year just on commercials that I've booked uh, with my agent or for myself. I mean, $10,000 is an income. You tell that to a regular person and they laugh at you or feel really bad. But if I tell that to an actor, it's like amazing. Like, oh my gosh, you you booked $10,000 worth of work this year? SAG actor that made $15,000, he was so happy because he qualified for SAG insurance. I think that what makes me question it is, is the viability, like the future viability of this career. Like, it's not—nothing is ever set. I, was, I just got booked last week on an HP print commercial, and then they emailed me to get my wardrobe and, you know, measurements and stuff. And then about an hour later, I get an email that says, oh, we're so sorry. Um, Chris's role actually got cut, so he was booked by accident. And it was three days before the shoot. And it was a $2,500 job. I mean, even then, it's, that's kind of better because I got the rejection. Uh, normally, you don't ever hear. And so there's no rejection. There's like an implied rejection. And so like the nature of the business, like my perceived in and life. Uh, relative to, like, other people around me. Things that I shouldn't be thinking about, but those are the things that kind of make me question. And then also, like, just the day-to-day. Trying to, like, be a working actor in L.A., uh, there isn't a lot of encouragement. And so I don't know when I'll be, like, feel secure in it. I don't know that any actor ever feels secure about it. I guess, like, growing up, I've always been told that I could do anything, and uh, I'm so good at everything. Um, when in truth or maybe not in truth, but from my point of view that, yeah, I can pick up something like really quickly, uh, but to master it, I think like, it's not, I'm not, I don't think that I'm a master of really anything.
0: And I know you don't want to give advice, but you could speak anecdotally to yourself. You did this crazy cross country trip, meeting all these people, being open to new experiences. And then you showed up in mm-hmm. LA and you booked a big national commercial Within the first couple months of trying to be an actor, is that right?
1: Uh, yeah, it was such a premiere on like the Olympics. Yeah, no, no, awesome. no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that, from the outside, would be like, yeah, I got this. This is no problem. What did you do in those those first six months to a year to really, you know, develop some experience?
1: So I think that what I did was probably not uh, the best. Cause we just, I mean, I just had no idea what we were getting into, and I, I have no tactical plan. I mean, thinking about my career, the I just had to get in somehow, you know, just get involved in the industry. And so I hit workshops hard. I guess the first year and a half, like three different commercial workshops, in order to know how to conduct myself in the audition room, start to memorize and and do commercial copy and. There's, like, a lot of technical things that you have to do, how to introduce yourself on camera. They usually ask you casual questions and then how to answer the casual questions in a way that are going to help you. I ended up taking one, that like, I had to pretend to be a tree. That was, <laughs> I don't know, just, you know, saying smart-ass things about insurance policy and, and just, you know, doing it over and over and over again. I think it, like, depends on your level of, like, being honest with yourself about where you're at. In the industry, and once you have a gauge of like, you know, am I just getting my first step in, or I was trying to force it the for first two years? Like, I didn't get like a B job or a day job because of, I was really hoping to just act full time. But the reality of that, uh, I mean, you have to work really hard and for a long time to be able to be an actor 100. percent
0: Can you talk a little bit about how the the industry has changed in terms of it used to be you book a, a national commercial. And there's there's a certain amount of money that you get paid, but then there's also money that you get paid um, every time that commercial gets aired, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. And I remember Vince Vaughn talking about this during Swingers. <laughs> during Swingers, when he first you know was living in L.A. as an actor, he booked some commercial and he made uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of, of eighty thousand dollars. And that's yeah, you know you can yeah. live off of that. That's a livable wage for for yeah, a, someone for sure. living in in L.A. Right.
1: Yeah, so I mean, when I I booked the Hackier commercial, I mean, I, there was a lot of luck, but I also booked it because they were looking for um, they were looking for well, the breakdown was for like beautiful people, and so I go there and I had gotten my headshots taken that morning before, and so I had a ton of makeup on, and so I walked into the audition like with all this makeup on, and then I booked it, and even my agent I was like, "Whoa, what did you do? Like, how did you how did you do that?" <laughs> and so. I mean, I think it, it was probably the makeup, and then when I got to shit, um, it was not beautiful people. It was, they were all, like, wealthy-looking people, but a lot of them had had, you know, maybe, like, plastic surgery, and they were, like, very, like, kind of quirky, creepy, I don't know how to describe the group, but I was shocked and horrified when I got there. Um, and then, while I was there, I mean, you get to talk to people, and when you're, when you focus, uh, a national commercial and like the people they've been working with are totally different than if I book a small non-union commercial because usually it's small non-union commercials are like either people at my level or newer and on a stag commercial I and mean, some of these people have been working for 30 years and some have like a long list of TV credits and things like that and so people are talking about making you know, I don't know anywhere from $30 to $100,000 because It was a brand statement to you for the holidays. And it wasn't a specific car. They're like, oh my God, it's going to run for two or three years. We're going to get paid out like every year. It's going to show nationally at the Olympics. It It was a great paycheck. But the way that commercials are paid out in residuals, like you get buyouts for internet and industrial so they can show it on the internet and at trade shows and things for a set amount, like $5,000 a year, for example. But when they air them on television, we get paid per showing depending on the market and the region, and then the frequency. And so when these commercials are shown like on NBC, ABC, Fox, any broadcast, national broadcast station, then you get paid like around $175 per time. And so if it runs 2,000 times, you're making like a ton of money. And they, a lot of these commercials run you know, around like two to 3,000 times. But for mine, they showed it nationally four times, and then they showed it 2,700 times on cable, and cable only pays you about 75 cents, and that's only for the first thousand, and it gets lower for the next thousand, and so those was like a large commercial gig. i getting fewer and fewer. I did have a friend that booked a GMC commercial, and he was a salesman, and so they split the commercial into five different spots, and he was like the salesman that walked up to the customer at the very end, right, as the Toyota logo comes up. And so they YouTube him, and everything is bought. They got paid about thirty
0: thousand per spot, but he was extremely lucky. Um what about for a straight commercial to web, for example? You know, Microsoft is introducing some new technology. It's not being broadcast anywhere. Are there any residuals for that, or is it just a flat rate?
1: If it's a union job, then there probably aren't residuals, but the the yearly buyout. How much they pay you per year to show it uh, is going to be the minimum that that requires, which is generally pretty high. Like you know, for a year of internet, it'll probably be like around three to four thousand. Plus, you get paid for the, like seven hundred dollars to shoot for the day. And then, I mean, the best thing about being in the union is uh, when I was on the hacker shoot, we shot from two p.m. until six a.m. And then, so every hour after twelve, I was getting uh, double the rate, and then I think once I hit 15 hours, um, I got a meal penalty that was $1,000, because they didn't feed me a well. and then I hit golden hour, which is like four times the rate. And so they really, like, take care of me, and that's why I think uh, union work is doing less and less and less. That's the thing about non-union, is that it's totally unregulated. I did backgrounds for a music video once, and Like, we had to split slices of Domino's pizza in half um, for
0: lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's kind of moving towards the Internet, and I know that even cable companies at the top want to deliver everything through data.
1: The ultimate question is, like, how is the Internet going to affect its industry, affecting, like, every single industry, and, like, really shaping the way that we make money? I don't know that... I mean, what seems to be happening is that there's a lot more work. Uh, it's a fraction of the pay. I would rather not be uh, the guy 10 years from now that is still doing a $500 non-union commercial because I need to make next month's money. Like, even the union, like, there's issues with the union now. Like, people, like, John Boyd is pushing um, going Spy or, which is some sort of like loophole. To get around the union. I don't understand it completely, so I don't want to explain it, Um, but it's a a union alternative, because if you're in the union, you can't work non-union jobs. But really, the only way they get caught is someone has to rat you up. And so there's a lot of union workers that are doing non-union jobs, but there are others that are going under this uh, FICOR loophole. And it's all really because that there are so few good union jobs now that people can't survive and so they have to do non-union work and then that kind of feeds the non-union monster that we don't really want to grow but we do by necessity
0: you know everybody that i talked to on the podcast has talked about at least at a corporate level is that everyone wants all of their employees to do more for less basically they want a predator so they don't have to pay a separate producer and editor it used to take a week to do the sound mix and now they have three days for it and there's no pre-production in reality TV, so we just kind of make it up. <laughs> it seems like when you have 10,000 new actors every week or whatever it is coming into L.A., with every other industry and uh, TV news and radio, 10 years ago this happened, there has to be some sort of you know come-to-Jesus moment with, with the unions and everything else. It seems like it, there's there's got to be a new model that's coming down the pipeline.
1: Yeah, I mean... Uh... It's coming. I've heard rumblings from, uh, like, casting people that they're going to move away from... Right now, the industry is, for actors is based on, like, your headshot, your reel, your agent, your manager, and then the casting directors. That's sort of, like, our world. Your agent these days is just a... Especially commercially, is a button clicker. They just submit you to everything that they possibly can if I'm getting on the wall to a sick. But now, what they're doing is, like, managers are starting, starting to feel The responsibilities of agents, um, where they're sending people out to audition. And then casting directors supposedly are going to move away from real and only do, like, only make decisions based on what, uh, because it's quicker. And um, they don't have time to watch a one minute reel. And, and I think the industry is going more and more and more stereotypical. Like, the actors are the very last. Laugh- bottom wrong. I think production assistants are valued more they just <laughs> um, I mean they're like part of the crew and actors are like just some kind of weird thing that come and they're kind of necessary but nobody really wants to deal with them I'm not exactly like you know producing my own stuff or doing exactly what I just said that they should you know they would be doing it if I was like a younger millennial like, even on the millennial scale I was
0: just thinking, this is kind of off-topic, but a little bit not, and I've just recently come to terms with the fact that I'm actually a millennial. Like I, I, I denied it for the last f- five, ten years, and now I'm finally, okay, fine. I always thought, I always thought the millennial was my brother, who's, who's eight years younger than me, but I'm still in the same class. But it's funny, I, looking at, I heard this report, and I have no idea if it's true. My hometown, Pittsburgh, is a very old city, and part of the problem recently of young people getting a job. And part of the reason why I left was that there was no work and they said in the next five to 10 years, you know, one fifth of the workforce is going to be retiring because of the baby boom, you know, the baby boom population. And they're going to be needing people to actually move in to the city to, to fill these jobs because there's not going to be enough workforce. And it's kind of funny and I wonder if that's gonna happen in every industry across the country where there'll be this finally this, this kind of boom and millennials will finally have a have a chance to kind of move up. You have a background in shooting and editing and you're you're skilled in that and you also have a background in writing. What's maybe stopping you from getting involved in other types of projects where you're where you're running camera and and producing some things on the side? I
1: mean, even if you not work here Far beyond what I was capable of handling as a shooter or even a producer. That thrown into it, I think I could do it, but I don't know that that's where I would best use my time now. But uh, but writing, directing, and producing are definitely in my future. I think that I um, consciously made a decision to like not uh, probably, like keep those like actively try to do those because. that was like my original intent and when i was at american i was getting really frustrated with the program There, um maybe it was just like a personality thing with me and the professors but um or maybe it was just me you know uh, but uh but i sort of like distanced myself from the film department as i started acting more and i wanted to you know be a better director and a better writer by acting and i actually think that i'm still kind of on that journey it's I will be able to focus on as a complement to acting.
0: It's also hard, too, because you're just trying to, you know, you're trying to get stable with an acting career and to kind of throw several projects. It's almost smart to to not do anything else and really focus on that because you already have a background in it. You can come back to it, especially writing.
1: I don't even know what technology is out there because I don't even think about it. I don't even watch sports. I don't do anything now except Try to live here and survive, and also act, and then also like Jenny's photography um, because we're editing that right now. So it's a big part of our time, and so we actually are working on a lot of different things at once. I kind of like didn't realize it until I said it out loud.
0: Well, you kind of always are, aren't you?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess. (laughs) That's good. I'm only two two and a half years in, so I'm trying to like be patient because I think the Common belief here that um, it takes five to 10 years to even be like at a co star or guest star level on a television show. And it, it's crazy how being here like changes your perspective on that kind of stuff. Like before leaving DC, if you asked me if I would be in a McDonald's commercial, I would tell you, no way. Like I don't believe I would never endorse McDonald's. And then coming here, and then I get called in to audition for McDonald's and you know, it's a sad commercial for Nick Cafe. I mean, I'll jump to do that, you know? The dream come true.
0: <laughs> would you have any advice for someone, that maybe they're, they've are they been kicking around that they want to move out to L.A. and pursue acting? What would you say?
1: It doesn't always work out, but, I mean, uh, I, we, tr- we try to use that as our, guess, you know, or anything that's, like, eating away at us, we think about a lot, you know? We, like, if we mention it three times, then we have to do it or if it scares the crap out of me, um, then I got to do it. And I, uh, I, I think you can still crash and burn, but I don't think that you'll regret.
0: Well, thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.
0: This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio, and thanks for listening. The show is recorded at Arlington Independent Media, or AIM. AIM is the home of WERA. Visit wera.fm for more info. There are countless ways to get involved, like volunteering on programs, taking classes, and producing your own media projects. Check out arlingtonmedia.org for more info.